Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Have you ever been thrown under the bus? Anybody ever been thrown under the bus? Kind of like what I just did to Rich. Uh, Or have you ever thrown anybody else under the bus? And by the way, isn't that a violent way to describe um, the whole occasion? We just talked about throwing somebody under a, a big moving piece of machinery. And if you're not familiar with it, I actually read about this. The, the terminology, the phrase, didn't enter into American vernacular until like the 80s when it became a political statement. Thrown under the bus is actually a political statement. So I thought that was interesting. And, and what it means is that you will uh, sacrifice somebody else for your own good. To save your own skin, you sacrifice somebody else. So like a scenario would be if, if you do something— and it's not really your, your proudest moment, all right? You do something and only one other person sees it or knows about it. And then later on, they, they rat you out. That is throwing you under the bus. That's, that's what that terminology means. On Wednesday, we ended our midweek uh, session. It's, it's one of our terms here on Wednesday nights. And we're going to take a break for the summer. Uh, the choir and the prayer ministry are going to continue to go on with some other ministries. But overall, our Bible studies kind of take a break for the summer. And we celebrated with, um, with a cookout, sort of. Like, you know, hamburgers, hot dogs, some bago, that sort of thing. And uh, Bob Leffer, he made some hamburgers, hot dogs. It was good. We're out there. And my oldest son is standing there eating a bag of chips, right? And the healthy kind, the ones that are made of cheese and puff, all right? So he's out there just eating those. They're on his fingers and stuff. My wife, Jackie, she walks up and uh, she does the mom thing. She's legally obligated to say something about what you're eating because, you know, she's a mom. And so she says to him, she says, you need to, uh, you don't need to eat so much of that before you eat your dinner, all right? That's, that's standard mom issue. You have to say that, you know? And he, without even missing a beat, says, Miss LaDonna said I can. And she points, and he points over at uh, LaDonna, which we all thought was very funny. LaDonna says, well, thanks for throwing me under the bus, you know, just like that. And, and that's a good illustration of being thrown under the bus. In our text today, we are finally getting to the night trial. The, the night trial is beginning. We've been leading up to this scene for a couple of episodes now, a couple of sermons, and so we're finally there, and we're excited to be there, but in the midst of all of that happening at night, and the darkness, and, and uh, the, the cover-ups, and the fake trials, all of that stuff that is going on, we get distracted just for a moment. We end up being distracted just for a moment, as some of the biblical authors decide, now is the time to throw Peter under the bus. And just in the middle of this story, there's this odd account that throws Peter under the bus, and it actually turns out to be a good thing for us. Uh, we really do benefit from this. That's what we're going to look at this morning. But before we do, let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your, your words. Thank you for um, mothers as we celebrate moms today. God, I do pray for uh, moms to be encouraged, to be strengthened. Uh, there's no manner of words or gifts that can equate to the sacrifice, the pain, uh, the joy that they experience. And so, God, I do pray that they would feel that. I pray for those of whom uh, Mother's Day is not a happy day because of some loss, because of some pain that they carry with them. Lord, I, I pray that they would find comfort in you. 
for that. I pray that they would know that this is a place that loves them and values them, regardless of their experiences or what they may devalue themselves for or the pain that they carry. God, may they feel your love and our love as well. God, in all of this, we pray that you would bless our minds and our hearts as we hear your word and apply it to our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray together. Amen. All right, so we are in Luke 22. Luke 22, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If you have an application, you can navigate there. I'm reading from what's called the Christian Standard Bible. If you're a guest with us, so glad that you're here. If you're watching online, we're so glad that you are tuning in. Hopefully you're following along in your Bible there. I'm going to use this cool little touch screen thing over here, but do not let that replace the Bible in your hands and in your hearts, okay? So it's very important that you are, are, are carrying along the scriptures with you. So this is what the Word of God says. Luke 22 verse 47 says, while he was still speaking. Now remember last week, uh, Jesus is in the garden. He's prayed. And he's telling the disciples, he's like, why are you asleep? Pray that you do not fall uh, into temptation. Do pray that you do not fall. So as he's saying that, suddenly a mob came and one of the 12 named Judas was leading them. And he came near Judas to kiss, or Jesus to kiss him. So Judas comes up and kisses Jesus. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, this is the betrayal story, all right? This is where Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, and that's what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying, are you going to betray me a friend with a friendly action? That's what Jesus means by asking about that kiss there. But I've always been sort of puzzled by, in what way is this actually a betrayal? Have you ever thought of it like, like how exactly is Judas betraying Jesus? It doesn't it doesn't immediately make sense. He just walked up and kissed him. That's, that's not like the worst betrayal I've ever seen in my life, you know? And, and, and so I had to dig a little bit and figure this out. Turns out that what's going on behind the scenes or what's happening in the story is this mob that comes up, these are religious leaders, the Pharisees, Sadducees, those kind of people, the, the temple police. As they come up to Jesus, they have decided that enough is enough. They're no longer going to put up with this Jesus guy. And now's the time to arrest him. He's in Jerusalem. Let's arrest him and take care of this. They're going to, they're going to put him through a trial and hopefully get him executed by the Romans. But they have a problem. Jesus is extremely popular. And so they can't arrest him in the middle of the day because there's a crowd usually around him. And if they arrest him during that time, they'll have a riot. So what they need to do is arrest him in the evening. Arrest him when he's away from the big crowd so that they can get him with, uh, you know, not as much uh, chaos or problems. So they need somebody on the inside, one of Jesus' friends, to go take them to where Jesus is in the evenings. Because Jesus is always moving around, and so they need somebody to help them find Jesus, an inside guy to help them find Jesus. The kiss— is just the way that they've agreed that when they walk up to this group of guys from Galilee, when they walk up to these group of guys that they're not all super familiar with, they know the Jesus one, that they arrest the right one. All right, so Judas is walking up in the dark and kissing on the cheek the right one. This is the one that you want. That's what's going on here in this text. Let's go a little bit further. Verse 49 
When those around him saw what was going to happen, they asked. These are the disciples, the friends of Jesus. They asked Jesus, Lord, should we strike them with a sword? Isn't that a, you know, an army is coming at you and you ask Jesus, hey, do you want us to stab them? You know, and, and uh, Jesus, probably, probably not a good idea. And then one of them struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Okay, so one of them's just not even waiting for Jesus to answer. He's like, I've had enough. I'm going to get this guy's ear right here. Um, uh, hopefully he was aiming for the ear and he's not just that bad at, um, at sword fighting. But Jesus responded, no more of this. Stop it. That's what Jesus says. And touching the ear, he healed him. One of the guys that is arresting Jesus, Jesus uh, pauses just for a moment to heal him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests, temple police, and the elders, that's who makes up the mob. So keep that in mind. The chief priest the temple police. Temple police were different. They were just assigned to the temple and they worked for the priest, okay? They weren't like uh, patrolling in Jerusalem. Their main uh, jurisdiction was the temple grounds there. And the elders who had come to him, um, he says to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal? Jesus is like, I've never done anything that you guys think that y'all need to come out with clubs um, against him. And every day, Jesus says, every day while I was with you in the temple, you never laid a hand on me. But this is your hour and the dominion of darkness. Essentially, Jesus is sort of making a cut at them saying, y'all could have got me. I was, I was just out with you guys yesterday and y'all didn't do anything about it. He's implying, I know what you're doing. You're sneaking around. You're doing this in the dark. You're doing this at night because you're cowards. But okay, it is dominion of darkness. It's nighttime, but it's also the time for evil, for Satan to, to take hold. That's, that's what he's saying here. But what we need to remember is what we talked about last week is this is a super intense scene. This is uh, a, a very uh, high-strung moment. Remember, it's at night. It's in the garden. Jesus has just prayed. The disciples are exhausted. There's this little skirmish with the sword and, and blood, and there's an ear, and, and all of these people moving about, not everybody really knowing what's going to happen. Apparently, they're very intimidated by Jesus because they don't just send one or two officers out to arrest them. They send an entire armed mob in order to grab this guy. So they recognize that he has some sort of power. They recognize that he's incredibly influential. They do it at nighttime in order to sneak into that. This is what's going on. It's this huge, chaotic, extreme situation that's happening. Remember, this story sort of starts back at dinner time, And in just a moment, we're going to talk about a rooster crowing. So that's the time frame. Late at night, dark. My mom used to say that nothing good happens after midnight. Anybody else's mom say that? Anybody else say that? The older I got, it got lower and lower. All of a sudden she was like, nothing good happens after nine. You're staying home. <laughs> I was like, I don't think, but okay. So that's what happens. Jesus is arrested. And the Bible says in other accounts of this that the disciples take off running. They just, they lose all of their strength, all of their courage, and they haul off running in different directions. It's just chaotic. It's crazy. I just really want you to picture that scene. You know, how it happens. Imagine you're standing there in the middle of the night next to your friend. He's talking to you and all of a sudden a mob comes up and they grab him and they've got swords. How would you respond? In what ways would you respond? A lot of them just take off running. The next verse, 54, says that they seized him, led him away, that's Jesus, and, and brought him into the high priest's house. Okay, so it's going to be outside of his house. He's got this big courtyard. We'll talk about that in just a second here. But they took him, and, and in the other accounts, it says that they tied his hands. They bound his hands. And so they arrest him. 
They arrest him and they take him to the high priest's house. And meanwhile, Peter was following at a distance. It's important to kind of see this because Luke is writing this down, picturing that Peter is following him. But we find out in John that John also was with Peter. So most of the disciples take off. Judas goes off by himself. Uh, The other disciples just take off running. Peter and John end up following behind Jesus at a distance to kind of see what's going on. In John, it actually says that John is friends with the high priest, or he's acquaintances with the high priest. And so when they go into the house, it's John that gets Peter into the house. So John is Peter's inside guy. He goes up, talks to somebody at the gate. You know, you can kind of imagine Peter standing off in the shadows. John says a couple of things, and then John turns back and says like this, and they go in. But they kind of stick off to themselves. They're off over to the side. It says that they lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together. So this is going to be Peter and John, a couple of those police officers, you know, maybe some of the servants of the high priest, some people just kind of standing around. And they sat down together, and Peter sat among them. And when a servant saw him sitting in the light and looked closely at him, she recognized him, she, his face. She recognizes his face, and she says, This man was with him too. But he denied it. Woman, I don't know him. Woman, I don't know Jesus. That's what Peter says. If that's his name, Jesus, whatever, you know. After a little while, someone else saw him and said, You're one of them too. Man, I am not. That's how Peter denies this. And Peter said, but about an hour later, so just think, like, really put yourself into this situation. It's late at night, very early in the morning, late at night. They've already been sitting there for over an hour next to a fire as Jesus is standing off here in the distance, surrounded by a, by a gang of bullies, tied up hands. They're yelling all sorts of insults at him. He's doing his best to overhear the conversation, but trying not to look too involved or, or too concerned with what's going on over there. Somebody says, no, you're definitely one of them. You're definitely one of those guys. Peter says, and he keeps insisting that he is not, And this man certainly was with him since he is also a Galilean. So apparently Peter's just standing over there talking. That seems to be what Peter does. He's standing over there talking and they knew that he was a Galilean because of his accent. See, Jesus and the disciples are from a northern part of Israel. Jerusalem is down towards the southern part, kind of in the middle, but down towards the southern part. They have different accents. And so they could recognize who Peter was, that he was with Jesus because he talks like Jesus. That's what he's saying. Man, I don't know what you're talking about. That's what he says. He just sort of acts like he's totally ignorant to the entire scene. I have no idea what's going on with this. Another account would let us know that it's at this point that Peter starts cussing. He starts cursing, because that's what people do, you know. When you don't want to look like a Christian, you you throw a couple of uh, curse words out there, and then everybody believes you. All right, that guy definitely, definitely does not like Jesus, all right? And so he's talking about him, and immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. So, Three times Peter rejects Jesus. Three times he's confronted by the people standing around. And three times because of his embarrassment, because of his shame, because of his fear, he just rejects Jesus. And then the Bible says that the rooster crowed. So it gives us an idea of the time. It's a daybreak. It also reminds us of what Jesus had said earlier, that Peter is going to reject him three times before the rooster crows. But this brings me to a question. I've got a couple questions for you this morning, but this brings me to one immediate question. Why, why is the story even in the Bible? Like, 
why include this story in the Bible at all? Maybe you have a good answer in your mind, but think about it. For three and a half years, they follow along with Jesus. They, they're, they're friends with Jesus. They're walking around with Jesus. We don't have every story in the Bible. The authors of the Bible, they, uh, by the Holy Spirit's guidance, chose certain stories in a certain way to tell a certain perspective of the story. That we know. That's, that's understood. So why include this one? Why make sure that this one is in there? All of the, uh, the, uh, the authors, Matthew, Mark, John, and Luke, all include this story in there. And we don't need this story in order to understand. So think about it. If this story wasn't in the Bible at all, we would all still be able to uh, understand that Jesus was predicted by the prophets, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived a sinless life, that he was executed in our place, and that he resurrected again, and that he ascended into heaven. We would know all of that. We don't need this story. So why is it that this story is in there? In fact, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't it be better for the mission? At the time that they're writing this story down, Peter is an extremely influential leader in Jerusalem. And most of these guys are living in Jerusalem. So they're writing, they're, they're talking to eyewitnesses, they're getting the accounts in line, they're, 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 they're building what we would do like a, like a documentary right now. They're doing that right now. They're, they're getting all of this, they're writing it all down. And at the time that they're writing it down, Peter's extremely influential. So wouldn't it be better for like PR sake or something like that to just, let's just sweep this one under the rug. Everybody doesn't need to know this story. Why would we include this story? That's what modern you know, firms or companies would do, you know, let's tell the story, but we don't got to tell everything, you know. Maybe for the mission, it would have been better just to keep this story out. In fact, this is one of the biggest proofs that what you read in the New Testament is true because they don't hide the ugly parts of this. They tell the, the, the brokenness of their heroes. So maybe, maybe it's something like that. The other thing that I wonder about this story is why is it included in the Bible? Because Matthew, Mark, and John are all really close friends to Peter. So like, why would they throw him under the bus when they don't need to throw him under the bus? It seems like you've really got to step back and ask yourself, why is the Holy Spirit prompting these people who are friends with Peter to throw him under the bus like this? You might say something along the lines of, well, Jesus earlier predicted that Peter would uh, reject him, so maybe it's got to be in there so that we know that Jesus is good at predicting things. Well, maybe so. But there's an earlier account where Jesus tells Peter to go get a fish and there's going to be a coin and Jesus predicted that and that worked. There's an account where Jesus predicts that the temple is going to fall. That happens in AD 70. And so um, we know that Jesus is good at predicting things. We don't need this story that makes Peter look so bad. So in your minds, answer the question. Why is this story in here in the first place? If we can come to that answer, we can probably figure out how it applies to us and what we're supposed to even do with it. I've got two reasons. I'm going to share with you two reasons. And uh, I don't believe either of them has anything to do with the idea that Jesus is just really good at predicting things. Here's the first one. The first one is to warn others of the temptation and the end result. The first one is to just let you know that you may be tempted to reject Jesus and that ultimately that will end in pain and bitterness and weeping and hurts. Look at um, up there in 31 through 34. This is what I was talking about where Jesus predicted that Peter was going to deny him before the rooster crowed. Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. 
Lord, he told them, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And in verse 34, I tell you, Peter, he said, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you even know me. So there's a prediction there, but it's not just the prediction. Remember, this story is here, I believe, in order to warn you that you're going to be tempted to reject Jesus. Peter, like I said last week, Jesus Christ himself told Peter that he was going to deny him, and he still did it anyways. Why? Because of his pride, because of his arrogance. Listen, you're going to be tempted, you. Every person sitting here, every one of you watching online, you will be tempted to reject Jesus. And the worst thing working against you is your own arrogance and your own pride. Peter says, there ain't no way I'm rejecting you. I'd go to prison. I would die for you, Jesus. I'm just that good of a Jesus follower. And yet it's in that that he does ultimately reject Jesus. Listen, I believe that you can have a personal relationship with Jesus. I believe that that's what Scripture teaches. I believe that through the Holy Spirit and through Scripture that you can know who Jesus is, that you can experience life with Him. But even in all of that, and as much as I truly deep down do believe that, we would all acknowledge that Peter and and John and Bartholomew, all these guys, they knew Jesus closer than we do. They knew what His laugh sounded like. They knew the way He walked. They knew the things that would startle him. They knew him like a friend. They knew him close, that sort of close relationship. And so what I want to point out is if Peter, who knew Jesus that way, if Peter knew Jesus like a friend and was still tempted to deny him, then you very well could be tempted to deny him as well. Isn't it a strange thing? Like, think about it. In this room, we can say this, but isn't it a strange thing that on occasion we are tempted to distance ourselves from Jesus? because of some academic situation that we're in, some professional situation that we're in, some family situation that we find ourselves in. We think to ourselves, I love Jesus, but in this situation, I'm just going to not bring him up. I'm going to make sure, and you know, if people start bringing up church stuff, I'll kind of dodge that question because we know that in our culture, and it's not so much our culture, it's not so much what's happening out there that always makes us do this, it's what happens in here. We try to build this wall up around ourselves with the way that we, we think that like, no, we're intellectual too. You know, I follow Jesus, but I'm, in, I'm smart as well. No, I, I follow Jesus, but I, I, I'm, I have business savvy as well. I, I haven't lost it. I'm not disconnected. All of these rumors and these thoughts and these ways that people portray Christians and all this, that sometimes we get embarrassed. And so we want to, isn't it an odd thing to be embarrassed by Jesus. But, but we do, right? Even his own friend, his very good friend, felt that. And so there was this distance there. But ultimately, what they want to show you in this story and why they put it in the text is because of this right here. And he went outside and he wept bitterly. Mark says it this way. Mark says that as soon as the rooster crowed, it broke him. It broke Peter, and he went outside, and he cried. And I would argue that anyone, anyone who fully understands and at the time remembers the sacrifice and the love and the extent of his forgiveness for us, this is the way that our rejection of Christ would bring any of us to this brokenness that it is just so ludicrous 
that we would ever be ashamed of the one who hung naked on a cross to redeem our souls. How could we ever be ashamed of that? And yet, we are tempted. So this story serves as a warning for all of us. Be warned, you're going to be tempted to reject Jesus. And if you do, your heart will be broken. It ultimately will lead to pain. You think you're going to build up a wall to protect yourself so that nobody can make fun of you, so that nobody can ridicule you, so that nobody can look down on you. You're going to build up this wall and protect your own heart, and in reality, you're going to end up breaking it. I was uh, with my dad once, and we were driving through a more rural part of the country. We were driving through the country. That's what we were doing. And as we were driving, uh, I noticed that there were uh, coyote uh, skins on the fence post. Anybody ever seen this? Show me your hands if you've ever seen this. All right. It's a thing. If you haven't seen it, it's a thing. Also, I served for a while in a town um, called Anna. The name of the town was Anna. And the mascot in that town was the coyotes. Okay. And if you said coyote, um, they yelled at you. All right. And so they're like, it's coyote. And um, so how many of you say coyote with the E? How many of you say coyote? All right. How many say coyote? You know, that's probably the right way to say it. But, you know, we're all wrong. All right. Anyway, so I, to this day, I still feel like, like unsure how to say the word. All right. And so anyways, I was driving down and I stick with coyote. And so I, we were driving down and I asked my dad, I was like, why are there coyote skins on these fence posts? And my dad told me that is to warn the other coyotes that if you go onto that ranch, you're going to be shot. If you go onto that ranch, you're going to be shot. And I believed him. And to be completely honest with you, I still kind of believe that. Now, uh, the more I think about it, I'm not sure that coyotes, you know, really see things in the abstract. They're just walking by like, no, I'll go this way. You know, I'm not sure that that's the way that they're thinking, but it proves a good point that this is what this is. Peter is the skin on the wall. Peter is the skin on the fence post to warn you, you're going to be tempted Look, you can think you're a really, really good Christian, and you are. Listen to me. I, I, I'm on your side. You're the best Christian there ever was. You're going to think that you're really close to Jesus, and you are. You do that well. But even like Peter, you're going to be tempted to reject Jesus, and the loving response, the loving warning is to tell you that leads to nowhere good. You think you're protecting your heart, but in reality— it leads to nowhere good. And there's another reason, I think. And it's not just a warning like this one here. There's another reason that I think is more powerful and in reality, more beautiful. And I see it most clearly in verse 61. This is what verse 61 says. So Peter rejects Jesus three times, right? The rooster crows. And then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Then the Lord turned and looked at Peter. See it in your head. See it in your mind. There's a courtyard. There's a gate that they went through. Somebody was watching the gate. They had to talk to somebody. There's a fire over here. Somebody built that. They're keeping that going. People keep going and getting, you know, logs. They're throwing that in the fire. That's going. Over there, there's sort of, there's a commotion. Every now and then, there's louder noise. It's extremely tense. Jesus is standing in the middle of all of these extremely influential leaders. His hands are bound. He's not saying a word. He's right there in the middle. They're yelling all sorts of insults at him. 
Peter is thinking, John is thinking, it keeps going through their minds, all of the things that Jesus kept saying that there's no way they could have ever believed it is that we're going to go to Jerusalem and they are going to kill me. All of that is happening as if they could breathe, as if they could even focus on what's happening in that moment. Three times, and Peter doesn't even realize what he's doing, but three times people are coming at him because of the way he looks and because of the way he speaks. And they're saying, aren't you with that guy? And three times Peter responds back saying, no, no, I'm not with those guys. No, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know. I don't know. No. And the rooster crows. And in that shattering moment, everything falls silent. And Jesus turns and looks at Peter. So this is the next question. Why did Jesus look at Peter? Why did he turn around and look at him? Why do they all make sure that you know that? Why did they turn and look at Peter? I'll be honest with you. My whole life, I've always read that story thinking that they turned, Jesus turned to look at Peter to judge him. Jesus turned around to look at Peter to say something along the lines of, I told you. I told you. It wasn't even like, Peter, it wasn't even 24 hours ago. I told you to pray. I told you you were going to reject me three times. Why you got to reject me? I told you you were going to do that. That's how I've always heard that story. That's how I've always seen Jesus whip his head around. But probably that's just my own wicked heart. When you read Luke all the way together, the way that he builds this story out, I now don't believe that at all. I don't think Jesus whipped his head around to let him say, I told you. It goes back to when Jesus predicted in those verses 31 through 34, I think it's verse 32, Jesus says, Satan has asked for you, but I have prayed that you won't fall. And then a little later when they're in the, 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 the garden there, Jesus tells them at the beginning and then he told them at the end, remember when Jesus walks back from praying and he kind of nudges Peter maybe, I don't know if it was Peter, but it was one of them. He nudges him and says, why are you guys asleep? Why are y'all sleeping? Pray that you don't fall. Listen, in the middle of that crowd, in the middle of that accusation, in the middle of the night, in the dark, in the cold, when Peter rejected Jesus three times, Jesus whipped his head around, not to judge him, but to tell him, I still love you. I still got you. I know what you did, and I still love you. Don't fall. Don't fall down. Stay strong. Don't run away. Don't feel that I have rejected you. When Jesus turns to catch Peter's eyes, it wasn't judgment. It was compassion. It was care. It was concern. Jesus whips his head around to see Peter, not to push him down, but to pick him up. Jesus loved Peter. And that's what he does in that moment. That's why this story is here. It's not to throw Peter under the bus. This story is here, and Peter is good with this story being here because this story shows exactly the way that Jesus is. That even if you do, he will still love you. You will be tempted to reject him. But even if you do, he will still love you. John chapter 21. Remember, John is the only one with Peter. John is the one who snuck in there with him. Not Mark, not Matthew, not Luke. John. 
So the one throwing Peter under the bus, telling everybody what Peter did that night, was John. John is the rat, okay? Just remember that. But in 21, in John 21, John tells another story in which Jesus has already resurrected, and he looks at Peter three times, and he says, do you love me? Peter says, yes. Do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. John is doing it on purpose. John is not throwing Peter under the bus. John is making much of Jesus. He's showing that even Peter rejected him, which we are all tempted to do. But even if you do, that's what this story is about. It's a warning story, but it's also a restoration story. A key part of the way that Jesus is. He rebuilds the broken, he forgives, and he restores. If you're going to my house here in Conway, and, uh, and if you're going from the northern side, or maybe you're on the highway, and you'll come down, you'll get off at Salem, you'll go down Old Moralton, then you need to turn on to Hogan. If you go that way, when I first moved here, there's not, a, there's not like a traffic light or anything like that. I had, to, I had to learn where you turn, right? Everybody has to do that when you move to a new area. And there's a bunch of ways that you could turn, but those aren't the right way, right? And they, those don't lead to my house. Eventually, I learned that there's this sign, this yellow warning sign that's shaped like this, that it lets you know there's a turn coming. You can turn at this point. Listen, some people believe that they have gone so far from God, and this story is not just skin on the wall to say, don't reject Jesus. This story is the sign that says, here you can turn. This is where you can turn. He still loves you. You can still come to Jesus. I heard somebody say this, and I think it's so true and so beautiful, that no matter how far you have walked away from God, the return is just one step. No matter how far you have rejected Jesus, no matter how far you have walked away from God, the return is just one step. Just turn back to Jesus. That's what this story teaches. So imagine you're talking to a friend and they'll tell you something along the lines of, man, you don't know what I've done. You don't know all the ways that I've messed up. And listen to me, sometimes they'll tell you what they've done and it, they messed up, right? They did some stuff. And I'm not talking about just the stuff that gets you into prison. I'm talking about the kind of stuff that keeps you up at night. The kind of stuff that makes your stomach turn over. The kind of stuff that makes you feel like you are worthless. They'll tell you to your face. And you'll hear them sometimes say these things. You don't know what I've done. There's no way. If you knew, they'll say, if you knew you wouldn't love me. And God knows there's no way that he loves me. Listen, there is nothing you can do that will separate you from the love of God. There is no sin you have made, no big um, pain that you have caused that is stronger than the love of Jesus. You're not that strong. And everything you have done, he knew before the cross. He knew that. He knew you and loved you still. Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I am convinced that in that moment that Christ, when you did whatever you did, you can tell your friend this, not you, your friend, that when they did whatever they did, I am convinced that Jesus wasn't looking down on them, judging them. He was trying to catch their eye to let them know, I love you. I still love you. 
It's not to say that what they did or you did wasn't wrong. It was wrong. Don't do it again. But it's not so wrong that Jesus can't love you. So here's how we're going to take this and walk out of here with this. First of all, I just want to pause towards the end of the sermon. I just want to say happy Mother's Day. Somebody on Facebook asked a a group of preachers, what are you preaching um, for Mother's Day? And I was like, uh, Peter's denial? Uh, I know it doesn't fit, but it was the next story. So um, happy Mother's Day. And I know online my mom watches. So happy Mother's Day, mom. And, and Bailey's mom always watches. She always comments. And so happy Mother's Day. And David's mom, all of them are in Oklahoma. We are big in the Oklahoma mom market. Uh, we're just surely owning that market over there. So happy Mother's Day to all of you. And I want to say happy Mother's Day to everybody here. So, but here's a couple other things. Don't reject Jesus. Don't keep doing that. Don't keep doing that. The next time that you're in that situation at college, in high school, in junior high, next time you're in that situation, we always think that that's what kids do. They're too embarrassed to be Jesus followers. You do that at work and you know it. Don't keep doing that. It just leads to heartache. If you have rejected Jesus, know this. It's not too late. Here you can turn. It's time to turn. You can turn back to Jesus. And another implication is that if we have been forgiven like this, then we need to forgive like this. If Jesus forgave you like this, then forgive other people like Jesus forgave you. Here in just a moment, I want to encourage you to make a decision that in this uh, next few few minutes, we're going to give you an opportunity where you're sitting, where you're standing to make a decision. However scripture has laid on your heart, whatever the Holy Spirit is doing in your mind and in your heart, you decide now, make a decision and say, this is what I'm going to do. Whatever that is, whatever the Lord is leading you to do. There's also cards in the seat in front of you. That's a great way. Every week we get, we get half a dozen or more of those cards of people writing in those cards and saying, this is how I'm responding today. There's a bunch of choices there. You can do that. Or, and I think this is a great option, or after the service, take that card or just yourself over here to these doors. They'll be open and there'll be volunteers standing in there. Kind, generous people. And they won't judge you like Jesus. They'll look at you and offer you forgiveness. They'll listen to you. They'll pray with you. So those are three ways that you can respond here in just a second when we close out this service. Not long after Jesus was crucified and he resurrected, then he ascended into heaven where he sits now, reigning over all of eternity. He told the disciples to go hang out in Jerusalem and wait there for a minute. The Holy Spirit um, falls on them and through that, There's this amazing story, this beautiful story in which the disciples preach the word of God, in which Peter, you know Peter, we've been talking about him all service. He's the one who was too embarrassed, too ashamed, too afraid to say anything in front of three strangers, people he doesn't even know. The word of God says that Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all the residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And then the Bible says that 3,000 people believed in Jesus after he was done preaching. You're not too far gone that you don't see the sign. Now's the time to turn towards Jesus. He's looking at you to let you know. Now's the time to turn. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family.
Thank you for listening.